0: It is possible that I will be interrupted a couple of times in the next 45 minutes or so by uh, parents or grandparents arriving to pick up uh, the kids who have been celebrating Pippin's pre-birthday. Okay. I may have recruited one of the kids as a listener of the podcast. We'll see how that goes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. He had a lot of opinions about climate change and energy, which I did not feel the need to engage with demonstrating personal growth.
1: This is to Let Me Sum Up, if you'll read that deep dive on climate and energy. I'm Luke Menzel, recording today on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. As always, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Global Vice President for Marketing and Extortion, Frankie Muscovitch. Hello, Frankie.
2: Good evening. It's uh, lovely to be scheming, I mean, potting with you both this evening, uh, joining you from Gadigal land.
1: And the shadowy high priest of Australia's climate, Blankarati.
0: Tenant get G'day, Tenant. Uh, well, I contest the label shadowy <laughs> as the blindingly white uh, fluff of the blanket that is surrounding me is reflecting uh, my ring light in uh, absolute splendour.
1: If you're unable to understand what we're talking about with that introduction, I refer you to uh, episode seven uh, with Catherine Murphy in which uh, Tenant's uh, Blanket loving habits are thoroughly unpacked. On this week's show we look at a new report which interrogates the contribution that coal mines are making to Australia's methane emissions and um, given we're addressing this uh, report, tenant, the news cycle has thrown up a story which is thoroughly on point because Australia has finally signed up to a methane pledge which was
0: first Uh, announced back at COP26 in Glasgow. That's right. So the Global Methane Pledge, originating with uh, the European Union and the Biden administration in the United States, is a global voluntary agreement for participants to contribute to a a collective effort to reduce global methane emissions by at least 30% from 2020 levels by 2030. And, you know, there's uh, a lot of means by which they are they are free to do so domestically and, and working together. And it's a pretty big deal. Some of the biggest methane leakers in the world are not yet parties to this. Russia's uh, not showing a lot of interest, and I'm not sure if entreaties from Europe or the United States... <laughs> I'm going to be particularly <laughs> persuasive to them at the moment. Carry a lot of weight just now. But a lot of others are. A, a number of uh, of Middle Eastern uh, economies that are, uh, are significant producers of natural gas uh, are, are participants. It looked pretty weird uh, last year for Australia to be standing clear of this thing. And what has happened now is the, the new federal government has taken a look at it. And they've gotten comfortable internally, but even more importantly, they've had some chats with key stakeholders who might have been worried by it. So methane emissions come from broadly uh, fossil fuel production and infrastructure and from enteric fermentation uh, or burps and to a much lesser extent, sorry headline writers, farts of ruminant animals. Uh, and so the the government's been having some chats behind the scenes with the National Farmers Federation. They've evidently been having some chats with uh, the uh, Australian Petroleum Producers and Exploration Association uh, and those organizations were vocally positive and supportive when the government announced uh, this um this dissipation. It helped, I think, that the government promised that uh, they weren't going to impose any kind of uh, fines or levies uh, or taxes on farmers to uh, advance this methane reduction agenda, Uh, unlike New Zealand, which has recently Mm. made some decisions there, and that they were already committed to imposing uh, a tough and safeguard mechanism on large oil and gas facilities and coal mines, relevant for today. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean anything different will happen from the uh, the gas producers' point of view either. Uh, but I, overall, I think this is a, a pretty significant decision. It's a positive one. Uh, it puts Australia back on the uh, the inside, not the uh, the outside, chucking rocks of global climate efforts. It is a voluntary agreement, uh, like actually. All of the agreements, really, um, on mitigation, uh, but it seems like a positive thing.
2: I Thought it was significant that uh, I think Chris Bowen like sort of emphasised the aspirationalness um, of the of the target and its voluntary nature. So I think this feels like a really good step to, you know again like a, another positive sort of step back into the international community and consensus about what needs to be done but it feels like if we're if we're going to like have a serious crack at that in the next few years then perhaps more policy than uh, than what sort of already on the table might need to be contemplated
1: i um i think it's worth bearing in mind that the reason why there's a focus on this is because of the the, the high global warming potential of methane in particular. And so there's a view from policymakers that there's a there's a, a specific reason to call this uh, particular greenhouse gas out and, and to focus on it. And um, I think it's one of those things where, um, you know, going into Glasgow folk were casting about for areas that could be elevated um, uh, to uh, accelerate action and uh, the view from certainly the Biden administration and EU back to... In strongly was well. Um, uh, this is an area where we could make a lot of progress if we if we worked together. Um, I think the, the sort of one point five degree scenarios that um, that I've seen rolling about have us cutting methane a lot more significantly than thirty percent by twenty thirty. It's worth saying that that um, need to get well above fifty percent uh, cuts globally to keep that one point five degree uh, target. In sight, but a focus on this particular greenhouse gas, I think, is is useful because it is such a significant contributor to the uh, to the emissions profile of of particular sectors. So it sort of takes the the high level national task and starts to break it down into into some granular detail that one can wrap one's arms around and think about. I agree with you, Frankie. There's not a lot of policy here, um, but um, if it prompts some thinking about what policies. Um, could be trialled to uh, support um, cutting that uh, emissions, um, then that would be a good thing.
2: I'd kind of love to see as the next step here... You know, just perhaps a bit of how much of that 30% do we think we might get um, through action under the safeguard mechanism? And then, like, what what else do we need to f- focus on beyond that? Because, like, we've got eight years. We don't have that much time. Um, and, and, you know, agriculture is a significant sector here. And there are really exciting technology, you know, breakthroughs. Coming through with um, seaweed supplements for feed um, for cows and things like that that are super super promising. So does it mean you know a very substantial investment in that to make sure that that's coming to a, a trough near our uh, near our, near all of our cows? Or I mean, I'd, I yeah, I just love to see a little a little more. Um, from the government about how we're going to meet um, those targets. There's no point committing to one unless, you know, we're going to take serious steps to to try and achieve it.
0: Well, so the the agricultural side I think is whatever pathway you want to take is going to be a slower one to ramp up than reduction of um, fossil fuel production and and transport-related fugitive emissions because agriculture like your choices are modify the, the food and the, the, the technology or the, the logistics around raising cattle and sheep in different contexts or genetically modify the, the animals themselves or administer vaccines or eat less of them and uh, do more things like um, alternative proteins and, like, whichever one of those, you, like, you like, they're going to take a while to do. Like, social change takes a while. Uh, working out how we would get feed supplements to grazed animals. The whole point of which is that you don't need to track them down and give them food every day. You just let them roam around. Obviously, I'm speaking as a shiny-ass wanker from The Big Smoke who (laughs) hasn't the foggiest idea uh, how to uh,
1: graze cattle. Tennant, thank you for uh, giving me your next uh, intro. (laughs)
2: Love it. Too easy. Continue.
0: (laughs) Building up alternative proteins and people's understanding of, of those proteins. Is, is not going to be fast. I have seen results. I think I've talked about these before, but um, dairy cattle, which are an important component of Victoria's emissions, uh, there's early results indicating their enteric fermentation emissions can be reduced by forty to forty five percent with seaweed based feed supplements, which can be administered twice or three times a day when they go for a milking. That's great. Like that's really good and and you know consistent with this kind of target, but that is still in trials. Um, it's nowhere in the marketplace, and uh, as you know, it's a significant component of um, of Victoria's emissions. But most of Australia's emissions are from uh, rangeland beef, yeah, and 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 yeah, uh, and sheep, but beef. So. I don't know how much of that we're going to achieve in eight years.
2: Well, this is a walk and chew gum situation, right? So I think what we need to be doing is looking at where the quick wins are. The paper we're going to talk about suggests there are some um, in the in the coal mining sector. Don't know. Should we talk about that?
1: Let's get into it. I'm psyched. The Australian Government's big new methane pledge It seems timely To take a look at a new report from Sabina Hassan that shines the spotlight on another major source of methane in Australia Coal mines In it she argues that satellite data suggests methane emissions from our coal mines Are chronically underreported And that Australia needs to focus on closing the highest emitting mines Better managing the methane emissions from the remaining mines And ensuring no new coal mines are built Frankie, uh, what did you make of this report?
2: Big question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't have my head in this space um, very often. So I found it interesting in that uh, it sort of, but you know, put some numbers around um, the proportion of you know emissions that that come from you know, fugitive methane uh, out of coal mines. That's about 5% of Australia's total greenhouse gas emissions um, uh, based on the figures reported through the uh, Angus scheme. So it sort of, it it steps through kind of where the majority of mine methane emissions come from so they talk about the split between uh open cut mining and underground mining Mm. and and the fact that the majority of reported emissions um from coal mines are from underground mines And, and i think methane accounts for about 80% of scope one emissions from those mines and then 60% of, you know, scope one emissions in open cut mines are from fugitive methane.
0: I think it was interesting that the underground coal mine methane is more likely to be actually measured versus the uh, open cut coal mine where it's typically estimated. Because in underground coal mines, methane is a very big hazard, and you want to uh, track it as opposed uh, as part of like filtering the air in the mines and keeping them from exploding. Uh, whereas it's all much more diffuse and 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 not a safety hazard at the site, uh, typically I think, uh, in an open cut context. So very different data for those two different kinds of mine.
2: And I think that's at the heart of the like one of the criticisms that the paper is levelling at, you know, the way Australia has been accounting or, you know, perhaps not accounting well um, for these emissions. So so beyond sort of giving a picture of what that looks like for underground and, and open-cut mines, it also says, you know, obviously the majority of these mines exist in Queensland and New South Wales. And then it also kind of points to sort of analysis done outside of Australia under the banner of the, the IEA and, and leveraging satellite Uh, Imagery to suggest that, you know, a lot of uh, those Scope 1 emissions, um, particularly from open-cut mines, uh, have been underreported, or that's what it contends, uh, to the extent that I think the IEA revised up uh, their estimation of Australia's methane emissions by, like, 57%. Such a turnaround
0: that we're, like, we're doing an episode where the IEA are the data-correcting heroes coming in and... (laughs) telling other people who've been getting it wrong.
2: Indeed. So that's sort of where the the contention is. So I think the central part of their criticism in this paper uh, suggesting is that the way the Australian government has required uh, coal companies with open-cut mines to report their methane uh, is is over it it oversimplifies things and it really and it results in a massive under-reporting of potential emissions i just want to put a pin in that because i read some of the papers that were referenced um, you know or sort of linked to here that seemed to suggest things had changed as well in terms of the way that those emissions are reported so with the open cut mines because it's, you know, you're just breaking up coal coal seams as you're digging stuff up and, you know, and methane's escaping out of those coal seams. Uh, it can be harder to, to measure that on site as you go. So they've, you know, they talked about allowing for the use of standard emissions factors, um, and the, I guess the contention is that the one that's applied... Uh, generally in some of these contexts is is leading to a massive, you know, underrepresentation of the amount of methane that might be coming out of those mines.
1: Well just on that, what they're doing in those open cut mines uh, is that per tonne of coal they're applying an emissions factor and saying, well that's the emissions. Hmm. And the criticism of, of this paper is, well, there's this wide disparity in the, if I can say, the methane intensity of these various mine sites. In New South Wales, for example, two mines accounted for 24% of coal mine emissions, but only 3% of coal output. And in Queensland, it's a similar story. Um, Two mines accounted Mm. for 29% of reported coal mine emissions, but only 6% of coal output, suggesting that in, in some cases there's, there's some mines that are so methane-intensive that are applying a, a general emissions factor to those mines would be in, entirely inappropriate.
0: And I'm going to hope that we're not going to run out of pen supplies because I think we should come back to this point when we're talking about policy solutions Yeah, because uh, there's a big link to the safeguard mechanism here. But you're right. the the, um, the fact that there's such variation among reported emissions, and that there are some significant reasons to believe because of uh, a, a range of emerging satellite measurement techniques and additional uh, on the ground and aerial survey techniques that suggest we we may be uh, we may we probably are underestimating uh, a lot of the reported emissions. And, and especially estimated emissions, like that, is significant, and it, and it does mean that we probably need uh, a fairly substantial effort to uh, upgrade how we do estimation and reporting and and measurement. And we uh, need to elevate this issue of of managing methane from from coal mines. Uh, as well as the other sources of fugitives not not dealt with here
2: so here's where I got, and maybe maybe it's just me that got a little confused, but they they talked about the application of these you know fairly generic uh, emissions factors. I clicked on a couple of links to papers that are referenced, and they talk about. Tier one, two, and three methods for for calculating emissions, and the sort of tier one and two are those kind of state and regional level emissions factors. So you know, mm. very generic. And then they and then they talked about a tier three method, which has been adopted by the Enger scheme, which requires in situ gas content measurement so you're basically generating an emissions factor per the site. What I read was that's what's used now. Where I think the claim around the limitations on these things come in is if you're operating in areas where there are really low gas volumes so um, something below I think it was like 0.5 cubic meters a ton. Those open pit mines can then use what's called a low gas zone default emissions factor, and I think that's where this comes in. But but on a kind of high level reading of this paper, you know, I I think you could actually read it and assume that um, that entire mine sites are able to just apply these generic like reasonably generic factors on a regional basis or whatever over over all of the um the methane like the fugitive methane from open cut coals and like that that's not what i read um, when i clicked into the links like i think they're in specific circumstances perhaps the you know the overriding point here is that there is a huge amount of variation um from coal seam to coal seam about the the the, the gassiness uh, of them and it is sort of like very particular to specific mines and then, then even it seems within mine sites you'll have some seams that are gassier than others and so what i took away from this is we should be trying to work towards a situation where we're having measurement that's as accurate as possible by having you know frequent measurements done certainly at a site level but perhaps even more granular than that
0: well the the promise of uh satellite measurement is that uh we will be able to get that kind of large-scale coverage i think that there is a. a tendency among people who are trying to make change in this space to present satellite data as like an, an, an unimpeachable corrective to the the scandalous under-reporting of captured, complicit um, systems in place within Australia – and like the International Energy Agency says in the in the document that is uh, linked to uh, for the claim that Australia's underreporting uh, by more than half on coal mine methane emissions, the IEA say say that some of the limitations of of satellite reconnaissance of uh, methane plumes is that it's a lot easier to observe uh, equatorial regions or it's it's much harder to observe extreme northern latitudes. It's hard to observe places that are frequently cloudy. Uh, it's easiest to observe places like the Middle East and uh, I, I would guess northern Australia. Um, so and there are disagreements between different measurement uh, approaches. So, like, my take on that is this is an exciting frontier. There's a lot of scope to improve what we're doing, uh, but I think we're going to need a while for it to shake out. uh, And in that that period of improvement, we're we're probably not going to be able to just, like, grab one figure because we like it and say, and this proves that you, sir... Are a rogue.
2: Okay, so if they hadn't used that very thing as the premise and starting point of the paper, <laughs> um, I wouldn't have an issue with um, what they've included in their recommendations around this. Because, like, well, actually, what they say further on is more sensible, which is that you yeah. want to be complement, you want to be taking a top-down and bottom-up <laughs> approach, where you've got the fancy satellite data, uh, but you're also kind of validating that with bottom-up measurements, you know, at the site. And presumably, over time, you can calibrate those things. Um, And so, like, that's a sensible thing to say in the paper. It's weird that they start by saying, we have massively underestimated Australia's methane emissions because satellite data. So that's a potentially fatal flaw is that a fatal flaw of this paper it doesn't help frame it up it's i
0: i'd say it's a weakness more than a fatal flaw hmm. and i've got another weakness but also not a fatal flaw to bring up which is global warming potential for anybody uh listening who is not a global warming potential nerd Global warming potential is a concept used to make it easier to compare the impacts that uh, different greenhouse gases have on accelerated climate change using a, a single handy number so that you could say you know if you're if you are talking about a policy that uh, cuts a bit of carbon dioxide and a bit of methane and a bit of sulfur hexafluoride. Like, what has that achieved in total? And how does that compare to a different policy that cuts a different mix of those gases? It's a really, really useful concept for policymakers. But, like, as is often the case, I think, when policymakers demand something from scientists or technical specialists, there's like a whole set of sagas beneath the number and the policymakers just forget all about those sagas when they get the number because the number is very useful. Mm. And so one of the sagas is, are you comparing all these gases based on their effects over the long term or the short term or something different to that? And most policy commitments are made in terms of measuring global warming potential over a 100-year period. But a lot of people who want to do something about methane tend to use a much shorter period. In this case, the authors laid the stress on global warming potential over 20 years. And the reason they do that is because methane is really powerful and effective in um, blocking infrared uh, while it's in the atmosphere, but it's only in the atmosphere for about 12 years or so before it breaks down to... Carbon dioxide and water, and so on a twenty-year time frame, methane's eighty-plus times as powerful as carbon dioxide. But over a hundred-year time frame, it's only what thirty-four times as powerful. Um, and there's another, like GWP twenty, GWP one hundred. There's also GWP's star. Doesn't even get mentioned in in this one in, in this paper, but that's another effort to try and uh, adjust for the fact that it makes a big difference with global uh, with with methane whether uh, emissions are increasing or stable or decreasing. That sounds like sort of so obvious that it's why are they even saying it? But it makes a really big difference for methane because it breaks down, and so carbon dioxide accumulates in the atmosphere if you keep emitting any uh, it will keep accumulating in the atmosphere in human terms more or less forever uh, whereas methane will will break down after a period so if your methane emissions are constant global atmospheric concentrations will not increase after a period uh, whereas if you continue to, uh, to emit more and more and more methane at a, at a higher and higher rate, then, then that impact will increase. So GWP-STAR tries to take account of that and give a sense of like the importance of the trajectory. All which is to say, none of that complexity really makes its way into this paper. This paper uses GWP-20 because it produces big numbers that make methane sound extra bad. And they, they have, have got a little little asterisk around. Well, you could do a hundred as well. And it's still bad, but like this is, it, it's written a bit campaigny.
1: Yeah, which is was kind of my issue with it is that they seem to be approaching this whole topic, and I suppose it goes to, you know, not unpacking all the nuance that is in that IEA paper. It goes to picking the the GWP, which makes for the most. Dramatic number um, in terms of what the impacts were having, and they sort of justify it. They say, "Well, look, we're going to solve this climate thing in the next twenty years. So the thing that we should be concerned about is impact over the next twenty years." Um, but I, I suppose it also would be uh, to note um, who's writing this paper, mm. right? They're a bit campaigning. Campaigners going to campaign. Dr. Sabina Assan works for EMBA, who describe themselves as an independent energy think tank that uses data-driven insights to shift the world from coal to clean electricity. And I'll put my hand up, and I I am very happy to say that I think that's an excellent idea, and I'm glad this organisation exists. (laughs) However, um, it it is incumbent on us as uh, a fair-minded critiquers of papers from from, uh, all... uh, all directions and all ideologies to say, well, you know, it it is from that perspective unsurprising that there's a lens that is clearly being applied to um, the data that they're drawing in, and they are they are looking to make a point, mm. and their point is that Australia's a bit rubbish when it comes to coal. It could be doing a lot better, and there are really big impacts if it does better.
2: Yeah, I think you can definitely critique them for the picking the metrics um, by which they want to. Uh, sort of focus their criticism through but it is it would be fair to say though that they point out that there are probably some flaws in the way that fugitive emissions are reported from australian coal mines and like that absolutely needs to be addressed i think that's fair what i what i found a little frustrating then because i was you know Eagerly looking forward to reading how the recommendations would would speak to you know like the the, the very good point that they raise, particularly as it related to the accuracy of reporting around open cut mines. Were that a lot of the strategies they talk about <laughs> are really relevant uh, in that context, unless um, you take. Really, the main point I think that this paper was trying to make, which is, well, we just need to get out of coal altogether and close all the existing mines and make sure they're flooded and not able to emit uh, methane even after closure. Like that's the big, you know. There's some stuff around improving monitoring and reporting and like all very sensible things, but apart from that, and uh, and a better use of sort of ventilated methane capture, like which is used in underground mining. There aren't really any suggestions for what you for what you do in that context beyond literally don't mine the stuff anymore, right?
0: Well so so just to give the the recommendations around undermined and underground mines they're due, the technologies that they talk about which are like delightfully named. Thank you, CSIRO, for Vamit, mm. Vamcap, <laughs> and uh, Vamcat. Uh, but these are different technologies for uh, for filtering, for uh, using for power, or for concentrating to to help you use for power uh, the methane that's captured in ventilation systems in underground mines. And the author's gloss is that these technologies could cut. Uh, within mines where they are applied, this uh, these methane emissions by ninety six percent, which sounds like it would be pretty good if it was done, and that, that if that was applied at at all underground mines in Australia, that would reduce total. And I think this was like as reported, so maybe still underestimates given all that um, all that uh, suspicion about the uh, open-cut mines, but reduce total reported coal mine methane by 45%, which would be worth doing. Hmm. But you, you're totally right, Frankie, that they, they don't have a suggestion for open-cut except don't, don't mine it. And, like, right now, and this will still be true when this episode goes to air, there is a debate going on about the safeguard mechanism reform And an awful lot of activities are seeking to claim the mantle of hard-to-abate sector. yeah. Uh, And the coal mining sector is seeking the label of hard-to-abate. And to some extent, the the authors agree, at least in terms of doing the activity uh, while abating. Um, And so the recommendation about don't mine or, or use coal... There is already a huge debate about this, um, but the question is, like, is that actually a constructive debate to have? And I, I've got a spicy take on this, except it might turn out to be totally middle of the road. Let's see how, <laughs> let's see how centrist you really are.
1: This is where um, you order the spicy in the Indian restaurant tenant and they took one look at you and just gave you the mild. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how very oh. dare... My pallid visage is glowing with indignation.
2: This <laughs> vindaloo tastes like butter chicken to my seasoned taste buds.
1: Well, I think I think I've got the butter chicken uh, take on this, <laughs> perhaps, and I look forward to your spicy vindaloo, tenant. But to give the author their due, they did sort of broadly say, "Yes, we need to get out of coal," but they did have some nuance in the kind of the pathway out, right? So, number one, don't open any more. Coal mines, and as as an advocacy document, because I think we need to read this as an advocacy document. They're making the point: well, there is all these bloody coal mines that are on the pipeline uh, in Australia, and it's going to just make this problem much much worse. And where we should start is uh, to stop doing that. And then they had some ideas for how one would uh, mitigate the the impact of the methane being generated by. Um, coal mines, and we talked about the work from the from the CSIRO and and others. The idea that you can um, you can capture the methane and, and combust it, or or put it through a flameless oxidizer and break it down into CO two and and water, so it's got much less impact on the atmosphere. So they are saying, look, they recognise, I think, that there's going to be some coal mining happening um, in the short to medium term, and there's ways that we can we can uh, lower the impact of that methane. And then there's this idea that goes back to my earlier point that there, is, there appear to be some coal mines that are much worse than others yep. in terms of methane production, and perhaps we should focus our attention on closing those yep. and supporting those communities, which I actually thought was quite a constructive lens to take on this because it takes it out of the world of, oh, we're going to shut down the entire coal mining industry tomorrow. And it says, well, you know, this is going to be a phased... Uh, transformation that we're working our way through we're not going to do it all at once and it makes sense to focus our attention on on the areas that are going to have the biggest immediate impact and that struck me as relatively sensible and brought a, brought a level of granularity to what is often like a you know a comic book death battle yeah. um, between the folk that are worried about climate change and the for folk that are worried about regional jobs so there's my there's my buttered chicken for you, Tennant. Give me the, give me the vindaloo. It was
0: mild and palatable. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I, I, think, I think I'm going to give two takes, spice and, like, the antiparticle of alternate universe spice that will cancel each other out in a shower of gamma rays. <laughs> <laughs> for, for coal mining emissions, like, even if they are being underestimated, And they probably are. And even if you apply a, let's focus just on the next 20 years, higher global warming potential uh, for methane, it's still the case that the combustion emissions of the coal when it's used, wherever it's used, are Mm -hmm. vastly larger. Mm -hmm. And so, like they're saying, uh, we, uh, we think... Uh, we're, we're really emitting uh, at least 70 something million tons of coal mine methane CO2 equivalent. But those coal exports are producing probably more than a billion tons of CO2 equivalent in the world where they're used. Um, so the big deal is use. And is use going to go down or isn't it? Now, there's, a, there's an argument here for supply constriction, and I don't think that that is a winner. Uh, I think the decisions that Japan and India and Korea and China and a lot of other places are making and are going to make about their own energy systems and how much coal they want to use are a very big deal. They are going in a positive direction. They've got, you know, there's things that could be done to help particularly low-income countries. South Africa's got a a pioneering deal uh, with uh, the European Union and others to help finance the shutdown of coal-fired power stations. Leaning into that kind of thing could be a very positive thing. But if we just look at, like, what has been happening around the war in Ukraine, uh, so... Vladimir Putin, as a weapon of geopolitical aggression, is constraining fossil fuel supply to Europe. And if yep. he were not the dictator of his country and an authoritarian, like a lot of people in Russia would be saying, what are you doing? This is, this is, you're ruining our markets. You're creating economic chaos internally. In, in Europe, it's not so popular either. Uh, and there's there's like there's a decent chance, more than a decent chance, that in the longer term, this is going to come good in terms of global emissions. In the short term, constraining uh, one source of gas is leading to a massive hunger for other sources of gas and for coal over gas. And it's like it's, it's pretty dark in the near term. If somebody were going to try and do that, something like that in terms of volume and speed for climate-related reasons... In a democracy, I think they wouldn't last five minutes. Uh, I, I think it's it's just not a goer, and people should concentrate on not using coal because, like, it's awful, it's expensive, it's dirty. Uh, there are cheaper, better alternatives to using coal. That's a very positive agenda, and stuff is happening in Australia on that front pretty rapidly. Um, it's not the fault of these authors. I'm well, I'm, this author. I'm, I'm sure you know. There's a there's a pace to when you can complete a paper and what, can, what you can adjust along the way. But a lot of stuff has changed since they evidently started drafting this paper. Um, but I think that like, the, the one big thing they want is like a voluntary Australian, we are going to, for global good reasons, not sell people coal. Oh, I, I think political leaders are going to keep running a mile from it. I'll give my anti, anti-spice in a minute because I've said a lot. I'm on board
1: with your spice. But are you then saying that we shouldn't worry about these methane emissions because, well, the the emissions from combusting the coal
0: is so much greater that it's a rounding error? Is that, Are you going that far, Tennant? I think what I'm saying is ultimately customer decisions – about how much they emit and how much coal they use are going to determine the fate of how much fugitive emissions we produce from mining coal. Because if they ain't buying, we won't be mining. Um, but, but I will go. I will go beyond this nihilistic uh, fate's out of our hands. Let's be blown on the wind. Oh, you're just you're just on your back,
1: <laughs> like, Trying your little tummy. going There's nothing we
0: can do. <laughs> we can do things inside our country, but, but yeah. okay. So here's here's the anti anti spice, and it brings us back to the policy discussion.
1: Just to be clear, I just want to pin this an- analogy down. This is the this is the soothing yogurt on the vindaloo that you just laid down.
0: Yes, if the yogurt is made of anti matter,
1: <laughs> anti matter yogurt. Okay,
2: anti vindaloo matter. <laughs>
1: Could we uh, we
0: pin that down? Proceed. <laughs> bad physics, but maybe good metaphor. <laughs> Possibly delicious. So we've got this debate at the moment about the safeguard mechanism. Everybody's trying to say we're special. We've, we're very hard to abate. Go easy on us. Don't don't ask us to uh, reduce too many emissions, or or something bad might happen. And like maybe it's true that the -the on-the-ground opportunities to reduce some of these emissions uh, without not doing the activity are limited. Maybe it's true that also coal mining is going to be an extremely profitable activity for some time to come and then it's going to like go through the floor uh, down the track. Maybe not that far down the track. I would be inclined to say on the safeguard mechanism look, well, we've We do have emissions commitments that we want to achieve. This is a significant contributor. The fugitive emissions are a significant contributor to our national emissions. We do need to try and get them under control. Like, just cover them with the safeguard mechanism, give them tight and declining, at hefty clip baselines... And see what happens. Like, if they've got a substantial financial incentive to apply all the CSIRO's best acronyms to reducing these emissions, like, see what they do. And I'm kind of doubtful that they're going to leave the country while coal is $400 US a ton in international markets. I'm also pretty doubtful that they've got, like, a... This whole uh, will be the last one standing. Will be the cleanest, most competitive suppliers in the world in twenty forty or something. I don't think that's true, um, but like we'll we'll see. So I, I think I think I went through controversy and anti controversy to merely mouthed. Um, well, let's just do the policy and you know it'll be fine
2: completely agree like the the big game is in where it's burned overseas once we've sold it somewhere get that but agree um this paper is not going to convince Australian politicians to, to not sell coal or to c- constrain supply. Um, but to your anti-Vindaloo spice point there, Tennant, I'm 100% on board with the policy response because like the main takeouts I took from the paper was we're not tracking this stuff as well as we should. So point number one, like, get the coverage and the, and you know, and the accuracy um, of the reporting right. Um, yeah, stick it in the safeguard. Put a massive decline on it.
1: All right. Uh, are we good? Is there anything else we need to talk about?
0: I think we've mined this particular seam to exhaustion, and it's time to abandon the site uh, while saying, oh, no, we're, we're still thinking about mudding that one a little more. We're, we're, we're not going to cap it just yet.
1: The business model of this podcast is just uh, strip mining papers for content <laughs> and rapidly moving on.
2: Like a bunch of vultures. <laughs> Picked over the carcass of this one. <laughs> Time to move on.
0: Picked its bones clean. <laughs>
2: it's very satisfying at the end. Like a good feed. <laughs> oh, God. Please edit that out. <laughs> i just guaranteed that's going into an outro.
0: Frankie Muscovich, <laughs> apex predator of the paper ecosystem.
1: Right. As always, we close out the show with one more thing in which we all share something that is currently captivating our attention. Frankie, what have you got?
2: Well, I've been wallowing uh, <laughs> in the trough. Uh, not... Not with the seaweed um, supplement for the cattle, but 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 just in the you know in the depths of climate despair a little bit this week because I clocked the release of UNEP's uh, emissions gap report. So they've been doing this annually for about the last 13, 14 years, where they provide an overview of the difference between where emissions are predicted. Uh, sort of projected to be or predicted to be, sorry, by 2030 and where they should be to avoid the the worst impacts of climate change. And what they have to say in this year's report is that, uh, you know, updated pledges since COP26 uh, held last year in Glasgow have made a a negligible difference to to where predicted 2030 emissions are going to be. And they also say that the policies that are currently in place um, through those national pledges uh, have us on track um, to a 2.8 degree temperature rise by the end of the century. So that's really not great. (laughs) The report also says that if we have implementation of all the the current pledges, uh, that that would reduce it to two point four to two point six. But we're still, you know, well beyond uh, a two degree scenario, and and certainly no chance of a one point five, which which is sort of the the way that this report was sort of promoted in the media and the the call to action um, really is that nothing less than a system-wide transformation very urgently done uh, can put us back on track. So this was saying with respect to, you know, the projections of policies that are already in place, we would need a 45% emissions reduction on those by twenty thirty to put us back on track uh, to one point five degrees, and and thirty percent on those are uh, projections for two degrees. It's not great, but um, you know I think as with um, most of these things, they are sort of intended as um, calls to action, and and you're know, really a, a chance to spur ambition uh, in advance of the, the cops that are coming up,
0: which we'll we'll really need to see um, how more ambition goes at COP27 because in the year since COP26, which concluded with a a call for all nations to further upgrade their pledges uh, over the coming year, not a lot of economies have answered that call. Australia did, but that was really catch up to the the lifting of ambition that nearly everybody else did prior to COP26 I would say some major economies have done some pretty impressive stuff in terms of adding substance to their commitments. The US Inflation Reduction Act is a genuinely very big deal in a way that, as we've previously covered in discussing learning rates, probably isn't adequately reflected in the kinds of uh, integrated assessment models that are used to extrapolate the impact of uh, national emissions pledges. And the European Union is doing a lot to uh, undergird their, their targets and to accelerate them. But at the same time, like clearly a lot more is going to be needed, both in terms of ambition and substance. Uh, or 1.5, even with overshoot, maybe a concept we should spend some more time on in a, in a future episode, will not be achievable this millennium. Yeah. I think the the relative
1: lack of uh, ratcheting up of ambition in the last year or so is to some degree a symptom of the fact that there was such a focus on everybody ratcheting up their ambitions in the lead-up to COP26. Yeah. Um, mm. And so it sort of captured and, in some cases, brought forward announcements so that countries were in a position to get, go into that important meeting of Glasgow saying, yep, we're stepping up, um, and there's all, almost a little bit of a, a dearth of uh, additional commitments as a result. The, uh, the other thing I wanted to say about the Emissions Gap Report 2022 was the very striking front cover, uh, which yes. attempted to uh, represent graphically the, the position uh, we, we uh, are in as a civilization. Um, the vast bulk of the, the cover. Um, is a very dirty sort of cloud of of emissions. Um, a, a window uh, is closing <laughs> in the centre of the the page. Um, there's a, there's a sliver of a of a happy green field and a and a, a blue lake and some flowers and a wind turbine that one can just see uh, through that window. Um, uh, alas, the uh, the pathway to the window is a ladder with uh, most of the rungs, missing or broken.
2: <laughs> hey. well, way to paint a picture, Luke. I mean, I, I before you both started talking, I was going to go, I'm trying to pull myself out of the wallowing phase of having read the report and choose to see it as a, as a starting point for... Further discussions and optimism and outcomes out of COP, but I think I think you know both of your observations that these things like they come in cycles, right? Like very mm. deliberately, and there was so much build up to COP twenty six. It's like the political capital has been exhausted, mm. um, you know, in a lot of places, and so you know it's probably going to be another couple of years before you know a lot of those um, big economies are in a position uh, to have another. A great big push, and obviously, like it's required uh, and it needs to happen sooner rather than later.
1: I, I choose to be heartened by Tenant's point, which is uh, huge investments in places like the EU and the, and the US are going to have spillover, yeah, against, you know, going to accelerate the development and proliferation of technology, and that's happening in other parts of the world as well. Mm. China and India, mm. um, which we don't spend a lot of time talking about on this pod, are making huge investments. Um, in this space, um, uh, India has a huge focus on reducing its fossil fuel inputs, uh, transitioning to renewables, um, and, you know, it's not the, there aren't countervailing forces in, in India as there are in, in every economy, but um, it is a big feature of uh, the way they're thinking about these issues. And so, um, you know, I, uh, I choose to believe that the window is just a tad more ajar than
0: is representing on the front of that UN report. You want to do a Blade Runner style, track 45 right, enhance, zoom in <laughs> to the bright spot, <laughs> a 3D exploration to head through that window and into a brighter future. Love it. Okay, uh, Tennant, what have you got? All right, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take a risk on this podcast and promote another podcast. <laughs> I listen to as fan-
2: global vice president <laughs> for marketing and extortion. You really
0: should have cleared this with Frankie first. Have
2: serious reservations, but I'm going to allow it in case there's some evil genius in it. Well, we'll see,
0: we'll see. But what there is is a cracking good discussion uh, between Michael Liebreich clean energy maven, uh, founder of what is now Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and Yanis Varoufakis, uh, left-wing economist, former Greek finance minister uh, and uh, like all-around global gadfly, uh, about how electricity markets are structured in light of everything that's going on in... Well, not just in Europe and the UK. It's pretty familiar in Australia as well. But uh, with the input costs for some electricity generators going very, very high and marginal pricing structures in place in those markets, every generator is earning much higher prices. And people are very worried about paying for uh, those economic rents. So what is to be done about this? And you've got a free marketeer calling for changes, to like stringent regulatory changes to the market that preserve a market but really have, have governments calling a lot of shots to, to make it a different kind of market versus an economist uh, calling for the market to be blown up and uh, having uh, central planning uh, take over with uh, an effort to preserve some space for innovation and entrepreneurship within a, 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 an explicitly state-determined whole, and I would just say two things about this. One is it, it's a, it's a great discussion. Uh, like they they are both not shy figures, and they they have a bit of biffo, but in in a good spirit, it's well worth listening to. Second thing though is that. This is a discussion that we are not having in Australia. Uh, like the, this is a real Sherlock Holmes curious incident of the dog in the night time, where the incident was that the dog didn't do anything in the night time, and why not? Um, we are going to see exactly the same surge in the electricity prices that everybody is going to be charged off the back of like a handful of trade exposed trade traded cost of of black coal exposed power stations and some gas power stations having their costs go to the moon. But all the other coal-fired power stations and, much as people like them, the wind uh, generators, the solar generators, like their costs are not changing. So are we going to change how our market works? Are we going to have more debates about not just a little toe-in-the-water Uh, investment vehicles, state electricity commissions, but complete takeovers. Like, I don't know. I I think we should have a discussion, Uh, but so far we're not.
2: I vote one for uh, energy market governance reform, but I'm coming at it from a demand side, getting a look in in and amongst everything that you're saying, Tennant.
0: I think that would be great. But I do note the net result of... All the chat and the jostling among energy stakeholders in the last few years on NEM reform has been that formal stasis has prevailed in a lot of respects. Um, Like Even people who want change in the energy system have wound up arguing against changes in the energy market rules. Uh, we, we've all wound up being a bit small-c conservative on net. What I would say about that in an Australian context is that
1: much of that debate took place in the context of state governments and a federal government that had fundamentally different views about yes. the problem to be solved. The other thing I'd say is that while we've had no shortage of so-called crises over the last 10 years... They pale in comparison to the one that we're facing now. Yeah. And so the combination of those two factors might mean that you might actually see more of a conversation about significant reform in this country than perhaps uh, we've seen over the last few years.
2: Yeah. And uh, Michael Leibrock, if you happen to listen to this podcast, we're fans. <laughs> we hope you're a fan of ours too. Please consider giving us a plug. <laughs> too bold?
1: Yeah. Well, the last time you did that, Frankie, it was, uh, I believe, Mufuru, and she turned up two episodes later. Totally. (laughs) You just uh, manifest uh, luminaries.
2: (laughs) Listeners, stay tuned. Oh, no. I think we might have set expectations a little high just then. Do not read anything into this, dear listeners, just yet.
1: Hey, um, my one more thing uh, is is also a bit navel-gazy, which is that I, I form the view that we we, we we refer to our gentle listeners, we refer to our um, our dear listeners. I think we need a name for the cohort of audience members uh, that uh, listen uh, so faithfully to the, the pod uh, every fortnight. I, I came to this conclusion because someone, and I've been trying to scroll through my, my Twitter to find out who it was, and I haven't actually pinned it down yet. I will, I'll try to remedy that um, at some point. But someone actually used the phrase summer operas. Summer operas. <laughs> yes, I knew you were
0: going to say that. <laughs> oh, so good. So, so I good. want to submit
1: to you, and, and there's been no preparation for this conversation, to, to Frankie and Tennant. Um, my, my proposal is that we refer to our dear listeners as summer operas. Uh, I was interested in your thoughts on that.
0: How can I say No. It's like it's uh, it's delightful. It's longer than saying "let me sum up," which in it's very much in keeping with with our decompressed style of uh, paper storytelling.
2: In our one-hour, forty-five-minute podcasts,
0: we're the lost of uh, paper podcasts. So let's lean in. Go for it.
1: All right. Summer operas, there you go. Uh, You have a collective noun, and we uh, promise to refer to you as such henceforth. Um, Well, that brings our uh, One More Thing segment to a close, uh, but we have one more segment to go, Frankie. Sugar and spice. And uh, we had the sugar from Reed last week, so uh, this week uh, we're looking forward to the spice from... From Muscovitch,
2: coming in hot off the back of the vindaloo-spiced conversation we had before. Oh, summer opera is steep. Do you struggle to get to sleep at night? Is it? Is it? Is it because you're lying awake thinking, could I be doing something more to contribute to the climate effort in this country? I'll have you know I sleep very well at night and and it's not because I've got a one-year-old that utterly exhausts me (laughs) during the days oh no it's not that it's that I can I can go I can lay my head on the pillow each night and think I have listened liked rated reviewed subscribed i've done all the things as it relates to let me sum up hell i even participate in co-hosting it on a fortnightly basis i'm not even asking you summer is to to lean in to the extent that uh that we are here but i could guarantee you a good sleep at night less bad dreams Less, less, less thoughts of am I doing enough, you know, to stop the climate apocalypse from from descending on us. All you have to do, dear summer operas, I'm really loving that. It really rolls off the tongue. Uh, All you have to do is like, subscribe, rate and review this podcast. Do it. Do it now. And you can look forward to a warm, comfortable night's sleep. That's my spice. Okay. I like it. Spicy enough?
0: I think it was a little on the positive side. I feel like you're encroaching into my territory (laughs) because
2: too positive.
0: You raised the dark thoughts of, of sleepless nights, but you brought them home to uh, the, the the wonderful sunlit uplands that await them if they do the right thing by themselves and their family.
1: I feel like you've uh, identified an issue um, but you've also identified a, a positive pathway forward.
2: Okay. Next time I get spice, I'm, I'm going to wallow in the depths of whatever negativity. Alright, that's fine. I mean, my natural inclination is to do this, but I felt like... With the with the one more thing I'd brought to you all, I was already doing half the job there, wasn't I? <laughs> so that's okay. I can plumb these jets.
1: That's our show for today. Uh, we're all on Twitter. Frankie is at
2: Frankie Muscovich.
1: Tenant is at Tenant Reed. And my handle is at Luke Menzel, and um, our email address is uh, let me sum up dot net. Tenant,
0: what should people send to that email address? They should send us papers that they think we might and summer operas might find of interest. We have a great big pile of them and we always want more. And uh,
1: we have a significant back catalogue of episodes these days. Muscovich, where should our listeners go to find them?
2: You could direct your browsers towards letmesumup.net and there's a veritable feast
1: Excellent. All right. Well, uh, for Frankie Muskvitch and Lieutenant Reid, I'm McMansell. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. There you go. Hello. In, in the can. Nice. Oh,
0: we're sorted till cop. That's good. Till partway through cop.
1: Hurrah.